0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Summertime in New England often means family vacations on Cape Cod. In recent years, beach fun on the Cape has been spoiled for some by the return of great white sharks thanks to an explosion in seal population. Later, we'll hear from the New England Aquarium in Boston about the trends. Now, before we get to sharks, we'll dive into a meatier topic, and that's Connecticut's budget crisis. There are several reasons behind the state's financial problems, but a new series by the Connecticut Mirror focuses in on the wealth disparities in the state and how the issue exacerbates other problems like job growth, housing, education, and safety net programs. We're going to talk with Connecticut Mirror's Keith Faniff, That's coming up. First, it's hurricane season. Puerto Rico was hit more than nine months ago. How are residents there faring today? Connecticut Public Radio is back on the island to talk with residents. Joining me now is Jeff Cohen, news director for WNPR, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jeff, welcome back.
1: Good morning, Lucy.
0: So tell us where you are right now.
1: Uh, we are in San Juan, Puerto Rico. We've been here for about, let's see, about a week now. We've got a couple more days of reporting, and our goal is to come down and do another assessment um, as reporters, sort of documenting the relationships that connect Connecticut residents to people here on the island, and there are many. Um, and it, as, it, as it happens, uh, we also happen to have found ourselves here in the, the remnants of the first hurricane, Atlantic hurricane of the season, which was hurricane barrel, then tropical storm, then tropical depression barrel. Uh, and the storm has dissipated. But the remnants are passing through now.
0: This is your third trip to the island?
1: This is our third trip. Our first trip was, um, let's see, it was in late October, I think. Our second trip was about four or five weeks after that. You know, we've really gotten a chance to see what recovery looks like over time, uh, and that's been, been interesting. You know, in our earlier trips, you really did see a lot of visual immediate damage, fallen trees, fallen power lines everywhere, hillsides washed across roads. There's much less of that now. Uh, I've had various explanations, you know, obviously people have cleaned up. Um, Hurricane Hugo came by here a few decades ago and when it did, wiped out a lot of the existing wooden homes, especially in some of the more remote places. So a lot of the, the, the stuff that's been built since then has been built with concrete and cement and heavier construction materials. So you, you see perhaps less visible destruction uh, than we did a few months back, but it's, you know, it's still very present in, in, in many other ways.
0: You mentioned this storm has dissipated, uh, but being there over the last week, what has been the mood of residents as, as this storm? Uh, they didn't quite know what was gonna happen, if it was gonna go uh, out to sea. I'm just curious uh, what they've been telling you as they look at recovery efforts from Hurricane Maria.
1: Yeah, you know, it's been a mix. Lucy, uh, let me first say, I'm sitting here and I can. I just sat through a really heavy rainstorm and uh, the, the warnings that are coming out, there was just a, a warning issued not too long ago for the island of St. Croix, which is not too far away, uh, for flash flood and don't drive, those kinds of warnings. Uh, so even though the storm has dissipated, the governor of Puerto Rico ha- has asked government workers to stay home today, uh, non-essential personnel. Uh, because the winds could yet be pretty high, uh, high enough, if not if not threatening in terms of a hurricane strength, high enough to damage the really fragile electrical system. Uh, even though people still have, may have their power rehooked up, a lot of these uh, lines are not uh, what they should be. And one to four inches of rain could cause a lot of flooding in places. So it doesn't take a hurricane to scare people. Sometimes that said, you know, yesterday. We were with some people who were preparing, and um, you know, it's ten months later. People who are not able to get FEMA assistance, who've been denied by FEMA for various reasons, perhaps they didn't have title to their property, or they were living in the in a back house on a on a back lot, on a property that maybe shouldn't have been there. We were at a home of a man who lived in about a twenty by ten building, half of which was blown away by Maria and some volunteers were coming together to help him piece his house back together once they were able to get materials. So we were there and speaking with people who will tell you that Maria is still very close to them emotionally and there's a decent amount of anxiety. Just because of how painful it was for a lot of people to, to go through. And then uh, a day before that, we were in Sidra, which is a town uh, inland, uh, with Carmen Coto. And, and a lot of people who might be familiar with Hartford or familiar with our reporting know that she was a Hartford person who moved to the island not too long ago before Maria and then s- s- sat out, Maria, or, or sat through Maria in her home here with her family, her, her parents, and her sister and then returned to Hartford. And she was one of the people living in the Red Roof Inn in downtown Hartford for some time because she didn't have shelter otherwise. And we met with her and you know, one thing that she said was, yes, we're preparing for one storm. Yes, we have three months of medicines this time, which we didn't before. We have much more water than we did last time. We have food where we, have, we didn't really have enough of it last, last time. So yes, they're preparing for this storm, but uh, they haven't really processed the storm that came 10 months ago.
0: And we have a little tape from that interview you did with Carmen Cotto. Here it is. The emotional and the mental part, still no one, no one I don't think in this island has started to deal with it. And so she's uh, talking about what you just mentioned, where they're still trying to process this, uh, uh, the devastation after Hurricane Maria um, more than uh, nine months later. Um, at the same time, you mentioned they're also working to prepare for the next storm. How else are they preparing? I understand that there's a, a efforts to get a community census underway?
1: Right. So in a, in a neighborhood not too far away within the same town, uh, we met with, this was a fascinating experience, with a bunch of men uh, and their families who they live sort of in the hills and uh, of Sidra, and when they were told that they wouldn't possibly get power till June or July or August, um, they, they at that point they had already been without power for four, four or five months, uh, and they weren't eager to wait. So none of them had electrical training, but one of them knew a guy who had a bucket truck uh, and uh, an excavator and some ladders, and they figured out as best they could how to do electrical line work, how to replace poles. Uh, They would scavenge, if they could, for fallen electrical lines, uh, which were sort of everywhere, and they recycled them. Uh, And they they figure that they got power back to about 500 homes uh, over the course of two months. Uh, They even made themselves some, you know, The town was called Montellano, the the neighborhood, and they got themselves some T-shirts that are pretty great. They say Montellano Electric uh, as though they were an actual power company, (laughs) but they obviously weren't. Um, But that was sort of some of the resilience that we saw, which was, look, we're not going to wait around for someone to come fix our power. We're going to, if it's not going to come for another four months, we're just going to do it ourselves. Um, That same neighborhood, to your point, Lucy, that same neighborhood is doing things that came out of that effort to further connect people. And one of them is doing a community census so they know who is where and how many of them there are. Um, and that was a, you know, a touching moment where, where we heard that you know, neighbors who didn't know neighbors before now knew each other. Um, it, it was a community effort that really, uh, from their telling of the story, really galvanized this one small place in this island.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. I'm speaking with WNPR's news director, Jeff Cohen. He and reporter Ryan Karen king are back on the island of Puerto Rico, uh, again, to continue the Island Next Door reporting initiative to see how the island is uh, is uh, recovering after Hurricane Maria, and also looking at the connections here in Connecticut. Uh, this is their third trip on the island, and we've been speaking uh, to him. Uh, they were there uh, during uh, Tropical Storm Barrel, which has now uh, but I am curious, Jeff, uh, where you're he- where you else you have headed uh, on the island, and who have you spoken with?
1: Sure, we've um, gone to a lot of places. Uh, we were earlier in the week. We were in the town of Morovis, which uh, we met with a woman, Iliana, who who is there, who is from Hartford and Holyoke, and grew up in that area, and who um, described for us the child. Her her stepfather passed away after Maria, and she considers him, uh, you know, he was ill before the storm, um, but caring for him, he, need, he had a lot of needs, medical needs that needed electricity from medicine storage to uh, breathing support and that sort of thing. It was very difficult um, without electricity. He eventually passed away a couple months or a few months after the storm. And it's an interesting question here of, you know, how do you count deaths? And is a storm death a storm-related death a storm-affected death? And you know these are these are questions that people with different minds than mine would would solve or answer. But she certainly considered her stepfather one of Maria's victims. Um, we then went <coughs> about eight miles off the coast of mainland Puerto Rico to the island of Vieques. If you um, know Puerto Rico or uh, a little bit of history. This was an island that uh, was sugar sugar mills and sugar fields for a long time uh, until the 40s I believe when the US Navy came in and used roughly two-thirds of it for military operations on the left side on the western side I think it was largely munitions storage and on the eastern side it was literally bombing runs um, and training exercises and beach landings and that sort of thing, which created a pretty tense relationship with the island. It's got about 9,000 people. A lot of people have since left the island um, after the storm. So we were there talking about the notion of whether or not Vieques could exist in the same way that it's existed before, um, meaning, uh, you know, a mix of a local community with some tourism and, and investment. Um, so we did speak with uh, retirees who've left the mainland and bought property there. We've spoken with people from Vieques. Uh, one woman, Wanda Bermudez, she told me, look, we want tourists, we just don't want them to stay. She feels that tourists who come and park it for a little while and, and buy property uh, run the risk of raising rents and pushing out locals who just, there's no real economy there to, to, to after the military, to really uh, support their lives. Uh, And then we spoke with a woman named Lynn Weatherby, who's a real estate agent, uh, and she had concerns about how the real estate market itself would fare after the storm, and here's what she told me.
2: I had four
0: contracts at the time Maria hit us, and pretty much figured maybe I'd get two of them to close, and we're actually going to close all four. Oh, so what's the consensus from other Vieques residents, uh, this idea that uh, there's others coming in and uh, buying up this property, I'm just curious uh, what their take is.
1: I think there's just a lot of contradiction and a lot of contrast in these sorts of things. We need tourism dollars, uh, some would say, but we don't want the kind of gentrification that would push out the people from the island who don't have the ability or the, the financial capital to compete in, in that way uh, with those dollars. Um, so. It's a tension, it's an island that lives now off tourism, because there really is no other economic engine other than government work and perhaps construction. Uh, And and, uh, perhaps the biggest thing that I've neglected to say is that the island is connected to the mainland of Puerto Rico by an underwater power cable. That's how the island gets its power or got its power. That uh, cable was damaged by Hurricane Maria and officials say it could be out of service for four years. So they're looking for a temporary power solution. Uh, and meanwhile, the island's on generator power, uh, two big generators. So, you know, it's, 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 it is it's fragile there as well.
0: You mentioned that uh, Vieques is known as a tourist destination. Have you seen a lot of tourists there?
1: You know, Lucy, we have. On Vieques, there, was, there were some tourists, not a lot. We, we spoke with a, a woman named Letty Perez, who spent, I think, 25 years in Hartford. She's, She grew up in Vieques and then ended up moving back and started a taxi company. She says she used to have 18 drivers in her fleet. She now has enough work for about six of them. She thinks now as the storm season really kicks into gear that whatever the work there would have been will trickle down to zero. She's a little optimistic about um, what will come after this storm season, but it's a wait and see for a lot of people. It's clear that business across Puerto Rico for tourism is down. But, you know, a lot of people say the same things. Look, the beaches are still the beaches. Uh, It's still a wonderful place to visit uh, and to eat and to to enjoy. But uh, tourism is not what it was.
0: Where are you headed to next, Jeff?
1: Today we are headed uh, probably to the town of Kanovanas, which is a town that we have visited before on an earlier trip. We did a story back then about a, a, a part of that town that was effectively built into a floodplain um, a federal wetland and people there don't have titles to their property can't get FEMA help and when it rains there it floods there uh, and it's raining here today really heavily uh, as the storms here blow through as I look over my shoulder at the beach and um, so we're going to go there and stay on high ground and, and, and try to assess you know what life is like here uh, even once the power is restored 10 months after a storm People are still living in homes with blue tarps. When it rains, it leaks inside of many homes, and so we're going to try and witness that for ourselves.
0: Uh, Jeff, we've talked often about the connections between Connecticut and uh, Puerto Rico. As you uh, plan uh, these trips and meet people on the island, how are you and Ryan connecting with residents here in Connecticut about um, you know the relatives that they still have there, the stories they want to
1: hear? Sure. Uh, you know, with each of these trips. Um, we do our best to spend easily three weeks in advance of reporting, uh, of reporting here on the island doing reporting in Connecticut. So all of the stories that we're working on have some kind of Connecticut connection, um, some way to illustrate the obvious fact that with over 300,000 people of Puerto Rican descent uh, in Connecticut, it's, it's around 7% probably of our state population that's our job right this is a local story for us we have to approach it as though it's a local story uh, so we work hard in advance so that by the time we get here those stories are set up the connections are made uh, so the you know the men you know the, yesterday the guy we were meeting with who was having who was helping rebuild someone else's home he was in in Rhode Island uh, growing up people before that we've met from Hartford and Holyoke so The other half of the equation is, Lucy, when you're in Puerto Rico, you don't have to work very hard to find people from southern New England because there's such um, a large population of people from there and a large population of people who travel back and forth relatively regularly.
0: And you can follow the reporting Jeff, again, and Ryan, Karen King, are doing for Connecticut Public Radio at theislandnextdoor.wmpr.org. Jeff Cohen, again, is news director for WMPR. Jeff, thanks for talking with us, and we'll see you soon.
1: You're welcome, listening.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. Coming up, how has wealth and income inequality in Connecticut impacted the state as it continues to struggle with massive debt? That's the focus of a special series from the Connecticut Mirror. Reporter Keith Faniff will join us with more right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. Connecticut is in a budget crisis. You've heard this phrase time and time again. There are a lot of reasons the state is suffering financially, but it goes beyond government coffers. When you break it down, residents are also experiencing economic stagnation. It's part of a much wider issue of income inequality in the U.S. But a new series by the Connecticut Mirror says income and wealth disparities in our state are even more pronounced when compared to others. For more, Keith faniff joins us in studio. He's one of the reporters on this special Connecticut Mirror Series. Keith, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And we know uh, our listeners have a lot of opinions when it comes to how uh, the state is being run as well as uh, what they see their municipalities doing. If you want to join the conversation, that number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So uh, give us some background on this wealth and income inequality series, Keith. Where did the idea come from? Why are you doing it now?
2: Um, Well, uh, this is something I think I've always wanted to look into. I, I I felt it really needed to get done once I started to listen to the debate about the bailout for Hartford, only because I was I was surprised by um, the amount of uh, misinformation I was actually hearing in the legislative debates. So
0: misinformation uh, from the lawmakers. Legislators. Mouth. I'm
2: sorry, but <laughs> y- yes, I mean just based a lot on, on perceptions, but also. Um, outdated perceptions. They were maybe questionable to begin with. But there were three things that I tried to think of when I was focusing on this series. One, we really live in wealth and income inequality central, Ground zero on planet Earth. There are very few places more extreme than Connecticut. Think about it. We're living in the wealthiest state, in the wealthiest nation in the world, outside of you know maybe some section of Saudi Arabia where there's one family with all all of the money. Um, There are very few places more extreme. Um, Two, most people don't realize that since the last recession, the so-called Great Recession, it's gone from a situation where Connecticut is um, a place where everybody's doing well. One of the reasons everybody has said, well, okay, so there are extremes, but that's just the wealthy pulling pulling away from a middle class and uh, low-income families that are still gaining. They're no longer gaining outside of the top 1%. Everyone else in Connecticut since 2009 is losing ground. That's something that's, that's new to the debate. And then lastly, you mentioned this in the introduction. It's already been established. Connecticut has its own, at, the, at state government level, its own enormous budgetary crisis because of eight decades of not saving for state pension programs and other retirement benefits. So as it tries to pay that bill and figuring out who's responsible for paying it, It's dealing with costs that are draining the money out of the state economy. At the same time that's going on, we're also supposed to, in theory, deal with these extremes in wealth and income inequality. It's kind of like juggling six chainsaws while you're simultaneously playing chess against a world chess master. Your brain's occupied on two impossible tasks at the same time, and so it's tough enough to... Um, deal with extremes of wealth that are threatening the economy. But when you're also trying to solve this seemingly unsolvable bill, it's like you've got two boulders you're pulling at the same time, as I'm kind of groping for my analogies here.
0: Uh, so you were saying that since the Great Recession, so uh, since 2008, mm-hmm. the 1% in this country has been able to rebound. The rest of the 99%, we're all getting poor.
2: And in Connecticut, the disparity is worse. Correct. Just to give you some idea, in Connecticut, um, the the top 1% um, since the Great Recession um, is 17.2% wealthier. To give you an idea, the average salary of the top 1% in Connecticut is $2.4 million. The bottom 99%, now keep in mind there are a lot of very rich people in the bottom 99%. That's you know just about everyone else. The average salary in that is 56000 but again, that includes a broad range. They're about 2% poorer. Um, to give you also some idea of what we're talking about nationally, the top 1% make 25 times what the bottom 99%. Again, so we're not talking about the folks who might be working uh, a job in a department store or doing you know, nighttime custodial work. We're talking about the average of 99% of the population. Anyway, in the United States, the top 1% make 25 times. In Connecticut, the ratio is 43 to 1%. In Fairfield County, it's 74 to 1. We're talking about tremendous disparities, and you get to a point when the disparity gets so great that it threatens your economy. So let's talk more about the consequences of this. Again,
0: Keith Faniff is with us, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, He's been reporting on a special series looking at income inequality and wealth inequality in our state. Maybe before we go on, maybe talk of the difference between the two, Keith.
2: Well, think of income inequality as pretty straightforward. It's basically what you earn in a year or what you might get from any stocks uh, in your interest earnings. Um, Think of wealth inequality as income inequality's big brother. And it's, it's much more dangerous. Um, wealth inequality will look at the value of all of your assets, your home, your car, any investments that you might have, minus any student loan debt, car debt, your mortgage. So it's taking all of that into account. Income inequality, for the most part, you can say, okay, it's money I earned. Yes, if you inherited a bunch of stocks and that's producing dividends every year, maybe you didn't work for that. But for the most part income is related to at least some effort on the individual's part. Wealth is often passed along by inheritance, simply by your birth. And the the, the challenge on that though is because it's much harder to redistribute. Um, wealth inequality also is when it gets too extreme. Now, we're not talking about everything's got to be socialism where everybody gets the same amount of money. But when you have a huge segment of the population that is not contributing to the GDP, to the overall productivity, eventually you get a tipping point where too many folks are effectively becoming a drain on society as opposed to contributing to it. Just to give you just a couple numbers, um, in Connecticut, um, The average um, uh, debt of the college graduate in Connecticut just between 2004 and 2014 rose from $19,000 to $30,000 because the cost of education, particularly public school education, is, is rising in Connecticut faster than in almost any other state, in part because we're shifting the costs of all this state government debt onto our public colleges and universities in the form of higher tuition. By the way, that increase I mentioned was almost 60%. There are very few states that can match that. Um, But, I mean, again, Connecticut is just seeing greater extremes of trends that are going on across the country. You have more and more people who can't get health care, can't find affordable housing, can't afford getting priced out of going to a community college education. So eventually they get to a point where they need help from society, they might need food stamps, they might need some type of assistance as opposed to being able to pay taxes and contribute to the overall productivity.
0: Keith, you mentioned um, at the beginning that uh, one of the reasons you wanted to do this series is listening to the narrative coming out of the capital um, from legislators about uh, the Hartford bailout. Right. So let's talk about that because you've also looked at a municipality that how they've spent right. and uh, this theory that Connecticut, I'm sorry, that Hartford just spends, 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 and and that's why they've gotten into this so-called right. uh, financial mess. Can you clear that up for
2: us? Sure, i I'd, I'd love to, you know, to to try to, you know, do a quiz. Now, of course, your callers are going to know it's a loaded question, so I'm not going to fool anyone. But um, if you ask most people on a per capita basis, meaning proportional to their population, we picked two communities we looked at, Bridgeport and Westport, two very different communities in Fairfield County. Um, one of the ones has significantly more crime, um, more traffic, more um, traffic, more children in school who might need remedial help, higher social service caseloads. And the answer in all those cases is Bridgeport. But most people would be surprised to know on a per-person basis, Westport, with far fewer problems, spends literally double what Bridgeport spends. And if you asked who are the top spenders, again, per capita, per person in the state of Connecticut, they're all Fairfield County suburbs. Of the so-called 25 distressed communities, 25 poorest communities in the state, and that includes Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, um, smaller urban centers like New Britain, um, there are only, uh, I want to double check my numbers here so I don't get this wrong, um, uh, well, there, of, of those 25, there are only seven that are even in the top half. On, a, on, on terms of per capita spending. So out of 169 cities and towns, there are only seven that even crack the top 84. The highest ranking one is Hartford, and it still only ranks 19th. Um, if you start going through the rest of the list, um, you'll get uh, Derby 27, New Haven 41, East Hartford fifty-seventh, Bridgeport 71. Um, n- none of these are up at the top. It's, it is strictly a function of if you have the money, you can spend the money.
0: Now, when we talk about cities, looking at Hartford again, I think it's more than 50% of their property that can't be taxed.
2: Right. That's another thing that I don't think people realized. It's it's correct. It's not only the fact that half their property can't be taxed because the state does not only exempt state property, but private colleges, private hospitals. Um, We have nonprofits that come in that might be able to do a lot of good in the city, but they also occupy property and then they take it off the tax rolls because they're exempt from taxation. Um, the state has two two municipal grants. The acronym is pilot um, payment in lieu of taxes. And in theory, we're supposed to be giving cities at least a portion back, a significant portion back of the money we don't let them tax. But to give you an idea how much it's declined, um over probably the last 10 to 15 years, uh, the pilot programs that were supposed to give about 50 cents and a dollar for state property are giving 14 cents. Programs that were supposed to be giving towns 70 cents on a dollar for every dollar they could not tax a, a private college or private hospital for are now only giving 23 cents on a dollar. Um, also... As money's gotten tight on the state budget, remember at the start, I said, you've got these two problems going on simultaneously. The state has this big bill, and they're trying to figure out how to dole it out. And then they've got this economy, this population that's extremely disparate in terms of wealth. Um, We used to always be able to afford not to reduce anybody's town aid. No matter how rich your town was in tough times, the worst we did was everybody was what they called held harmless. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at, okay, if we have to cut municipal grants, should we be keeping the poorest towns shielded and should we be cutting aid to wealthy communities? And then some people are still recalling those hold harmless days and they don't want to let those go.
0: So what is the path forward? What have economists told you, Keith, on how Connecticut can possibly get out of this giant hole right. that we're in? Because, like you said, we have these massive debt obligations that haven't been paid for decades, the pension and retirement uh, benefits. And then you have the consequences of uh, job growth has not um, – I think they've recovered almost all of the jobs. Of the, the private
2: decade? sector of jobs. Private but sector. overall, we've only got about 80 percent of the jobs. We're the only state that hasn't hit 100 mm-hmm. percent.
0: So which way forward? Is yeah. there one?
2: <laughs> there, there is no easy path forward. And you can't, it's not a, a simple matter of just taxing because taxes, by definition, are also a drain on the economy. Um, I looked at several studies, both in the US and in Europe. And one of the things that I found, uh, because don't forget, Europe during the last recession really went even heavier, heavier on the austerity approach. Let's see if we can just cut our way out of this recession than the United States did. And that didn't That didn't work for Europe. Um, But what a lot of people found is you need to have a baseline amount of investments, particularly aimed at your lower income segment of your population. You want to really protect the – you don't want the lower income population slipping too far away from the middle class. If you have to maintain minimal investments in community colleges – in healthcare programs, because the more people you can get in your society who are productive, who are paying taxes, as opposed to whether they're in prison, whether they're going to the hospital and they can't pay for their... In other words, we're talking about uncompensated care, whether they're on social service programs, the more people you can have contributing to the overall GDP as opposed to a drain on it. That's the slowest... I mean, excuse me, that's the the surest way for your economy to destabilize. So I, I, I think... I'm sorry. I'm trying to gather my thoughts. I think that probably the primary focus would be seeing if they could make investments in those areas. And that's Connecticut's challenge, though, because every penny we have is probably also needed just to pay our pension bills. If you're going to pay both, it's going to involve raising some taxes, and that gets you into political problems.
0: And you've covered the legislature for years, Keith. The only places that lawmakers can cut are social services and education.
2: Correct. There's very little flexibility in the budget. Most of these pension obligations, um, uh, despite what some people think, are largely fixed by contract. In fact, 85 cents out of every dollar we put into the pension for the state employees that we put in for the teachers isn't about saving today for today's workers. So the money's there when they retire. It's making up for the sins of the past. It's catching up on payments our parents and grandparents, unbeknownst to them, never made. So. There's, I mean, even if every, I always say, even if every state employee and public sector, uh, every teacher, public school teacher in Connecticut demanded you cancel their pension for the good of the state, we'd still have a tough road to hoe.
0: This is Where We Live. Keith Faneff is in studio with me. He's a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. As we look at this series, he's been reporting on uh, with looking at wealth and income inequality in the state of Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we were talking about which way forward. Uh, you know, In your stories, you've also focused on uh, Connecticut's over-reliance on the property tax. Municipalities have tried to figure out other ways where they can um, you know, pay for services if state aid is diminished. Uh, but what has happened there in terms of uh, maybe being more uh, diversifying the
2: revenue sources? We try. And it's each time we take a step forward, it's like dipping your toe in the pool. And you say, "Ah, oh, it's too cold. And then you pull back out. Um, we tried twice uh, since just since uh, Daniel Molloy has been governor to share sales tax receipts with cities and towns. And it goes forward with good intentions. The problem is Folks don't look beyond the next election, so they dangle this money, but if they look at the cost projections, they're going to see, well, the pension bills are going to keep going up. And so every two years, our biennial budget starts, the cost of the pensions goes up, and people say, oh, shoot, we know we promised you that money, cities and towns, but we can't afford to deliver it. And I think the towns are getting frustrated because they say, well, why do you keep dangling it? You know, I mean, there is the data out there. You can look at where your pension bills are expected to go. The teacher pension alone, we put about $1.2 billion right now into it. Some forecasts have that bill going north of $6 billion a year by the early 2030s. So it's not like this information isn't out there. And, and, and we're actually getting to a point where communities are starting to say, Stop dangling it because we know you're not going to deliver on the promise. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we've also heard the narrative that um, if uh, the state were to raise taxes on the, the, the 1%, right. that uh, these uh, billionaires would flee. Is that a correct uh, hey, narrative out there?
2: I've said many times, the, the one thing is, um, I, my my, my, my The new anecdote, excuse me, not an anecdote, um, oxymoron, sorry, that I hear all the time is anecdotal evidence. Um, It's one thing people, everybody knows somebody who knows an accountant and there's somebody who's going. If you look at the data, particularly the U.S. census data, the segment of the population that's leaving Connecticut are college graduates looking for work. Here's another thing to look at. People say, well, I looked at the census data and the income of the people moving out of Connecticut is greater than the people moving into Connecticut. I'm not surprised at that when you think about the fact that Connecticut's wealthier than the other 49 states every single year. Most people don't realize, you know, the population moving into Arkansas is richer every single year than the population moving out of Arkansas. Nobody has produced a study yet that says Arkansas is the new center of wealth in the United States of America. Even though they've had wealth pouring into that state, every year for decades. It's not that simple. Yes, if you keep raising taxes, I'm not saying the principle isn't valid and you have to balance it between that and the other choices you have, which is the bill collector isn't isn't going away. There's no good easy solution to this. Um, But there isn't this overwhelming data that uh, state tax rates drive the wealthy. Just I would point out quickly, before we had the income tax in 1991, We had, most people forget, a tax on select types of income. We taxed dividends at 7%, uh, excuse me, capital gains at 7% and dividends at 14, if you made a lot of money. (laughs) Then we replaced it all with a flat income tax of 4.5%. In 1991, the wealthy in Connecticut got the biggest tax, state tax cut in the history of the state of Connecticut. It did not produce this huge infusion of rich folks pouring into Connecticut, and our income tax, our top income tax right now of 6.99% has just gotten back to where we were before 1991 in terms of what we would tax um, capital gains on. And it's still only half of what we taxed dividends at almost three decades ago.
0: Keith I'm talking to you about this series uh, again just a few uh, another month before uh the the primaries uh, and, and then in November we're looking at uh the the election of a new governor of the state of Connecticut. Have any of the candidates been tackling uh this this topic uh, on the campaign trail?
2: No, because we have on if if anything um you're continuing to hear a lot of Hartford bashing, particularly I mean the the Republicans have a five-way primary it looks like for governor. So of course in any primary you're not going to pull to the center, you're going to pull to your base. So we're hearing a lot about Hartford. it's spent too much, it's not managed. Um, it's it's uh, budget that well. Uh, that's been the charge. but I think after the election, a lot of folks are going to have to be careful because whoever wins, if it's a Republican in particular, they have to be careful about the expectations that they set. And for that matter, the same thing uh, when it comes to Ned Lamont and and Joe Canham. We are still looking at projections, despite the fact that we've now got a close to a billion dollars in our emergency reserve, our rainy day fund, um, which is equal to something like maybe 6% of annual, not even 6% of annual operating costs. The projected hole in the first new budget for the next governor is double what we have in the rainy day fund. And the year after that, it goes up by another $600 million. And the next governor won't have the luxury of being able to lay off state employees, which means they won't be able to get concessions because our last concession deal has a ban on layoffs that continues two years into the next term. Sorry to throw all that out. But there are, there are very few tools left. Which brings us to the question of
0: why would anyone want that
2: job? I don't know why anyone (laughs) would want that job. I
0: should say Ned Lamont, who's a Democratic-endorsed candidate for governor, will be on Where We Live this Thursday. We're going to ask him how he's going to tackle some of these big problems that you've mentioned, Keith. Before we let you go, uh, what's next in your series?
2: Well, we have uh, another two pieces coming out around Labor Day. We're we're chipping away at this sort of going at it at different points throughout the year. Um, We're going to be looking at how wealth and income inequality galvanize uh, se- racial disparities in Connecticut, looking at in, in terms of health care, in terms of social services. Um, we're going to have a second piece looking more specifically at health care, looking at affordable housing. And then as we get closer to the election, we are going to explore uh, wealth migrations, who really is leaving Connecticut and we'll also try to ask some of the candidates about solutions and see if we can't pin them down on a few. Keith
0: Fanifagans reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. We've linked to his stories at Where We Live on Twitter. Keith, thanks so much for your thanks time. Thanks so
2: much for having me.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now we're going to shift and we're going to talk about New England summers, including the return of the great white shark off Cape Cod. Are you listening while vacationing on the Cape? Have recent shark sightings closed the beach near you? We want to hear from you. 860 275 7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. July is the start of the busy season on Cape Cod, which means beaches are full. But according to the Boston Globe, swimmers aren't the only ones in the ocean. There were at least seven shark sightings in two days off Cape Cod during the 4th of July week. Is that unusual? And what's behind the return of the great white shark? Joining us now by phone is Tony LaCasse, spokesperson for the New England Aquarium in Boston. Uh, Tony, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Lucy. Glad to be here.
0: So over the last few summers, there's been a lot of attention on the return of the great white shark. Tell us why they're back.
3: Well, the principal reason is is that their preferred food is back uh, in great numbers on Cape Cod. Uh, gray seals, uh, which is a very large seal, that's not something that you see necessarily on the Connecticut shore. Um, they're back in very large numbers at the elbow and on the outer uh, seashore uh, of the outer Cape. And uh, they're, they're in big numbers. And they've recovered uh, sufficiently in the last 10 years that the white shark population that's always been endemic to the Northwest Atlantic has realized that they have their favorite restaurant open now.
0: Now, when you mentioned the return of the gray seals, that wasn't always the case. They were uh, pretty close to being extinct. And then there was the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Tell us about that.
3: Yes, uh, gray seals were a native species to New England. Uh, The uh, the Puritans and everybody else uh, did a very quick job on them. and early 1700s, and they were essentially extirpated uh, from from the region, and um, what happened was that they didn't come back, they were basically only down east uh, in in adjacent areas of Canada, and what happened then was, uh, for probably nearly two centuries, uh, there was only harbor seals present in the region, and then we had the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, and, uh, and that allowed them to slowly start to recover. Uh, numbers went from just a few dozen in their principal pupping grounds off Nantucket to now we have in excess of 3,000, uh, each year. And we also get some migration in from Canada. So we've got, uh, uh, you know, big numbers of these. These are larger than the harbor seals that you see in Connecticut. Uh, our harbor seal in Connecticut probably usually goes 150 to 200 pounds. Uh, the gray seals that you see in the females are about 300 pounds and the males about 600.
0: I know when I go uh, to uh, P-Town on Race Point Beach, you see those gray seals uh, bobbing in and out of the water. And I'm curious, uh, when we, we look at the attention that the uh, the great white shark has received in recent summers on the Cape, where are they coming from and how long do they, they hang out on Cape Cod before heading out again?
3: Uh, the white sharks that we've got off of Cape Cod have always been, um, the difference now is, is that they're much more visible. Um, so we have a relatively small population of white sharks compared to, let's say, other great white shark hotspots, let's say, like Mm -hmm. California, parts of Baja and Mexico, South Africa, Australia. Um, These uh, great white sharks are migrating up from the Caribbean. Uh, Mostly what we see is uh, some data shows that there's a lot of activity often in the winter time off the Florida-Georgia line near Jacksonville. Uh, And they'll migrate into the area as early as May, that's probably just a few individuals, and they start coming in in larger numbers by mid-June. They really prefer a water temperature about 60 or 65 degrees, and so they'll be here through the the mid-summer or early summer right through until about October. The water stays quite warm on the Cape uh, through then. Then we'll have the same thing. We'll have most of them that'll exit the area go south for the winter, but we'll have a few hang around, uh, depending if there is good water, if there's good feed in the area. Um, mm-hmm. White sharks are a little unique among a lot of large sharks because they can raise their internal body temperature slightly, which is not a characteristic common to a lot of other shark species. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, This is where we live. On the phone with me, Tony LaCasse, spokesperson for the New England Aquarium in Boston. We're talking about uh, the shark population off uh, Cape Cod. And we know uh, many people in Connecticut vacation up there. You can join our conversation. Uh, How do you feel about the return of the gray seals and uh, the sharks uh, during uh, peak summer season on the Cape? You can join us at 860-275-7266. Tony, I wanted to talk about the community response, uh, the tension that's there when we see, um, you know, environmental. And others would see that it's, it's a good thing to see the, the gray seals back and also to see these, uh, these white sharks. But at the same time, when sharks show up, that means the beaches have to close at times.
3: Yeah, the beaches, uh, the percentage of the time that beaches are closed is probably in the very, very, very low single digits. Um, the towns that there have taken a very proactive approach to being able to uh, manage that. And in many cases, uh, you know, the, you know, the town of Chatham's really embraced, uh, the, the sort of the, being the, the great white shark capital of the East Coast. The thing to keep in mind is that the, uh, most of the Outer Cape, the Atlantic facing side of the Outer Cape is the Cape Cod National Seashore. It was created by JFK. It's part of the national park system. And so when you go there, you're actually going there to, to see something that's much more exceptional than visiting your average, uh, you know, beach anywhere along the Atlantic coast. And it's taken about 50 years to be able to have almost what's really a full restoration of an ecosystem there. Um, you know, my, I've been lucky my entire adult life. I've either worked in the outdoors or worked uh, with wildlife. And uh, the Outer Cape is one of the best places in North America to see wildlife, whether you're out whale watching, seal watching, uh, seeing uh, lots of terrestrial life, you know, uh, there and, and just the stuff that's happening on the beaches. It's outstanding. And it's really outstanding all 12 months of the year. And so it's a little different in terms of coming in. Uh, I think the towns have adjusted well. The state's been supporting them in that. And, uh, and the approach is very similar to if you've gone to Yellowstone or to Glacier National Park in the ro- northern Rockies, there is a lot of active management of much more larger and much more dangerous predators than the white sharks there. And they've managed people in terms of grizzlies and cougars there for, uh, for decades um and their attitude there is it's much easier to manage the people than it is to manage the animals. And so in this particular case we've had that. The uh, actually there's a good chance that the gray seals and some in particularly maybe with some local uh, um people are maybe a little less popular than uh let's say even the white sharks are. And part of that is is that the gray seals uh you know just have a for if you're a fisherman, a recreational fisherman working from shore, you probably had your uh, you know, your uh, striped bass or your bluefish taken off the hook from uh, a big gray seal in the water. Uh, that behavior that we saw this weekend uh, that was happened with the charter fishing, fishermen much more commonly happens with big gray seals than it does with sharks. So um, it's balanced, uh, I think, in terms of what we do there, but when people arrive, they realize it's something really unique. Um, and I think the big thing to keep in mind is that area from Chatham to Provincetown—that is an oceanic national park—and uh, and I think we should enjoy it as such.
0: White sharks are protected, so there's are there any concerns about illegal trophy fishing, Tony?
3: There is uh, no, there's not uh, a big concern on illegal trophy fishing. You know, sometimes white sharks are landed; um, they have to be released. Uh, generally, you know, the the charter fishing community is very responsible in terms of being able. Uh, to take care of that. Uh, They actually realize, as as this charter fisherman did in terms of releasing the video online, that uh, uh, people are going to remember seeing a great white shark uh, uh, as part of their trip, much more so than catching a nice striped bass. Uh, So that's uh, not as much of a concern. We do have a, a smaller population overall. Like I said, they're more concentrated. A sort of interesting biological phenomenon that's happened is, is that these white sharks that were widely dispersed from Long Island up through the middle of the Gulf of Maine um, historically had been, through much of the 20th century, there hadn't been a lot of seals for them to feed on. And uh, we know from lots of necropsies over the decades that they primarily had been feeding on actually dead whale carcasses that were floating out there. And we always have had uh, a lot of whales in our region, so there's always something to, an opportunity to eat uh, on, and that's something that they had done a lot, and those carcasses are fairly dispersed. What happened is, is that over time, with the gray seal colonies building up, um, they probably just became aware of just the olfactory presence of them. And, uh, white sharks around the world, their preferred meal is a very large seal or sea lion.
0: Uh, Tony, um, we're almost
3: live and blubber.
0: Tony, we're almost out of time, but when uh, Connecticut we have listeners going up to the Cape and they see a lot of seals in the water, should they stay out? Should they assume that sharks are nearby?
3: Yes, it's a general you know we have a, a general rule of thumb. If you're on the outer cape, uh, then if you see seals in the water, you should probably get out of the water. You just lessen your chances mm-hmm. of that. Uh, white sharks aren't looking to eat on people, <laughs> but uh, they are going to be in water that doesn't have good as good, 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 good. We'll have to and leave so
0: it there. You uh, thank you, Tony, for that advice. Tony LaCasse, spokesperson for the New England Aquarium in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.